Salams guys, my name is Mohammed Zaud and I'm the co-founder of Toledo Society, which is a podcast network dedicated to English-speaking Muslims across the globe. We've launched a couple of shows and we have several in the pipeline. Our first show, which is called The Transit Lounge, which I host, is currently live and you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. On The Transit Lounge, we interview people who've had a considerable impact on the Muslim world. People who've had positions at the White House, members of parliament, business people and community people. We also have another show that's currently live called Seven Stories, Seven Minute Stories as you drop off your kids to school. We'd love your feedback and if you'd like to find out more, visit ToledoSociety.com. That's T-O-L-E-D-O Society.com. Assalamu alaikum. I'm Khalil Alika. And I'm Zahir Parker. And welcome to AccidentalMuslims.com. So AccidentalMuslims.com is a, a movement, a platform where we showcase present and future leaders to help us live with purpose. And we believe that everybody has a story to tell. This podcast hopes to add value. So welcome and enjoy. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to AccidentalMuslims.com. Today, oh, this evening, we have a very special guest, Nisar Fangaka. Nisar, welcome. Well, thanks for being here. It's uh, good to be chatting to you and to your listeners, yeah. Alhamdulillah, as usual, it's good to be here. It's uh, just from our preliminary talks, it's going to be a very interesting conversation. And thank you for accepting our invitation and being here this evening. Alhamdulillah, it's a pleasure. Yeah. So, our stamping question up front is Who is Nisar Kangak? Oh, he's just a simple guy. I hope one day I'll, I'll know that myself. I'm still, I think, on this journey of finding myself. Working progress, you say? Yeah, it's, you know, the, uh, one needs these long journeys in life. And I think you go through cycles of, of searching deep in, into your soul. And I think it uncovers different chapters as you write this book of your life. But uh, that's philosophical. I'm just a, <laughs> a young man who was uh, born and lived in Cape Town all my life. I was born in Alsace River. Yeah. I lived there for a greater part of my life. And uh, a very interesting society and community, actually. Um, I, I think I'm pretty fortunate that I'd lived there, grown up there. It's not a very stereotypical... Um, yeah, a society, I think, where you are exposed to just so many realities on, on, on a daily basis. And you see this cross-section and multitude of people, of completely different walks of life, people from different faiths, different genders, different ages, different vocations, and um, which makes it an exciting melting pot. If I were to think back and, uh, well, I never lived in District 6 or seen District 6, but I guess... Uh, would probably have been a similar place. And there were some, I think, interesting people who lived alongside us. And you get to understand people, um, I think, in a different context. But it was a great time growing up there. You know, I went to a a Roman Catholic primary school, uh, which I think back in the day was, it was fairly common. It was, you know, you think about, now you think about progression and all of this, but more than 30 years ago, I was at a pure Roman Catholic primary school. And um, which also makes you appreciate and uh, makes the integration a lot easier. You know, and thereafter I went to Southern Suburbs High School, Livingston. Um, 
I'm not sure if any of you are on the table with at Livingston. At the time when politics in South Africa was burning, um, and I'm talking about 84, 85, 86, a very interesting time in politics and particularly education and what we were trying to achieve at the time. Uh, a completely different experience, I think, um, meeting more... I think privileged or affluent people uh, coming from the leafy suburbs too. And uh, but again, a different education, a different uh, molding of, of of yourself and, and opening up a different chapter again. Interesting, but uh, I think 85 was an interesting year. We, uh, schools were closed. It was, it was hectic uh, in 85. And then get to have to make subject choices and all of that down the line in 86 and what if you went I was very straightforward and plain simple vanilla <laughs> just did the, what was it maths bio physics and accounting I suppose you could do or just study anything after and then you get to your matric and you have to decide now what's next and I I was what I think fairly good in accounting and I really didn't know what to choose and my accounting teacher just said there's the book from UCT it's the yellow book and you must do that course <laughs> <laughs> and I looked at it and it was a business science degree four years and uh, I applied for it I was accepted and then I hopped on and went into UCT and I must tell you um, actually coming from a, a school like Lewiston at that point in time I don't think any school could have really prepared you for a UCT of the time given the education system and I must relate an example on on the first day of campus at UCT and the first lecture was maths and um, in the maths class at back in the day uh, the business science students the engineering students the science faculty students we all had the same maths class it was called maths 105 full year course in maths and the first day we get to the lecture and there's this, I think Professor Allison um, going to the board and starting the maths lesson. And I had a, a fairly good mark in maths in matric. And he starts and this guy's carrying on and carrying on and he's asking questions and everybody's answering. Everybody seems to know what's going on. And I'm thinking, did I come to campus two weeks late or something? Did I miss last week's lecture? Because this is strange. What's happening? I just don't understand. And I think that really made me realize that we had a, two different education systems. One for the, well, colored schools as they were then called. And one for people from, uh, you know, the bishops and sacks and all of those schools. It was interesting, fascinating, but we persevered. And we had to get through this. And um, I think back in the day, in the 90s, if, if I were to look at business science back then, and, and I see today, obviously, lots more people doing the course and that. Um, it, it was daunting in many ways because you sat there in a class of what we were in finance. We were about 90 students. And of that 90, we were probably six students of color. And of the six students of color, we were two Muslims. And the other four were not even South Africans of color. So the statistics were skewed against us. Um, but you made your place and you got through it. And, you know, 
I think everybody's as capable as everybody else. So some early lessons. And <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. Talk about a melting pot of experience. I mean, that's from some A all the way to for a business side degree, mashallah. Just summarize. But I think what stood out for me was, was alhamdulillah, you, you still look fondly back on your, your, your childhood days, of, especially in Alcides River. Oh, yes, very uh, much and, so. And that's fascinating because, I mean, we know the stigma that Alcides River has with uh, uh, currently with the, the gangsterism and all those sort of things. And not to say those things didn't take place that time, but it, it, it's really refreshing to see someone... Uh, latching onto those experiences and, and and maybe my question to you is this how do you think those experiences molded you to the person that you are now oh no there were so many learnings let me tell you um, in, in Altis River we have um, the Siddiqui Masjid is the named after and the foundation stone of that mosque was laid by the great Molina Abdulalim Siddiqui um, back in the early 50s and um, we were very fortunate and we still are fortunate as a community to have had um, I think it's almost 60 years now that we have Sheikh Amin Fakir as the imam in charge of the, the institution. And we all grew up in front of him. He named all of us, we, you know, all our kids, all the names. Sheikh Amin was then, he was a great part of the family. And uh, that society and the community at that mosque, it's, it's a pretty vibrant society. But, you know, if I think back today, and I, and I go back there frequently, the magic about the community is that, you know, it may not be a, a community that has many material um, wealth or importance or whatever, but the, the community, the lives revolve around the masjid, right up until today. And you can see it, it's so evident they live for the mosque and for each other at the mosque. You know, I, in, in Ramadan this year, I put a post on, on Facebook and it was just, I, w- I was sitting and thinking back to Ramadan back in the day when I was still living there and I recalled a, a, um, an, an instant, you know, that would happen frequently in Ramadan, uh, for iftar every evening, everybody would sit together in the mosque and we'll have a mass iftar basically, right? And everybody would bring whatever, and it's there, and it's time to go back, and it's Isha, and normal. But there was one person in that community uh, who was passed on many years ago. His name was Abu Sufyan, right? And um, his roots must have been in, in Zanzibar also. And there are various different accounts of how he ended up in South Africa and Cape Town. But I think in Greater Cape Town, people can remember him from... He used to go from door to door and walk across Cape Town with his bag of, um, like we'd say, stockies, you know? <laughs> he would sell agarbatis, basically, incense sticks. Um, and that was his vocation, you know? And he would walk from Elsie's River, whatever. Somebody would give him a lift and he gets to maybe Bishop Leviston. From there, he ends up in Rylands. From Rylands, he ends up in Petrit, ends up in town, and he works his way and he's back in the evening. But Abu Sufia, you know, for this person, he, he was, that, that's what he was doing as an income. He raised beautiful kids. But every evening in Ramadan, he would not get to mosque without at least a bunch of bananas or dates that you would have gotten at Atlas in the day um, to share with everybody, you know, and it's that sharing and that, you know, it's, it still has this uh, 
impact and it's, it's yeah it's made a, a great impact on just seeing you know never mind how little someone has but you know the the positive impact that you could have on somebody else just by that the you know um i know up until today still the the greater communities in the northern suburbs Alsis River, Goodwood, Balha, all of those areas they have a very very successful um fitra fund and you would say, but those are the people that needed it. But no, those are the first people to actually top up the fund. So, but that's just a little bit about that community. So it's an interesting melting pot. Yeah. I just want to go back. Um, so you finished your PA's business science. Science, yeah. And then what was your first job? Okay, so this was interesting again. <laughs> in the final year of my course, so business science is basically an honors degree. So you have to do a dissertation, not you. And um, in the last, what semester of that year, you would have to present your thesis and defend it. And, and there was one particular group, not my group, uh, that was doing a thesis on black business. Now, I'm talking 1994, basically. So this whole concept of black business and black economic empowerment and all that didn't actually exist at the time. But on that particular day, the group that was presenting the thesis, they did a panel discussion on black business. And um, that morning, it, it was about a two-hour session, and everybody obviously has to attend. It's compulsory. It's part of the class. We get there. And what's the topic for dinner? Oh, no, it's black business. What's Who's going to present here? No, there's a panel discussion. Okay, now, who's on this panel? And the, yeah, this is Andy looks familiar, his name is Mustak Bray. And next to him is this gentleman, Fred Robertson. And then there was somebody, I think, from Business Partners that was then called Small Business Development Corporation. And there was this panel discussion between them and the class on this thing. And um, at the end of the class, I was like sitting at the back. And again, we stood out like sore thumbs there because we were the only people of color in the class. And uh, the rest of the class, I think 80% of them were also Jewish. You know, they study finance. <laughs> and um, Musta comes up to me and says, Oh, you know, you and what if you and I that explained to him, you'd have known my late dad, whatever. And he says, So, what do you do? I said, No, this is final year, I'm not sure what I'm going to do next year yet. And because that was my first meeting with Musta, that was the end of 94. In 95, well, we then qualified and Typically, like any undergraduate, you apply here and apply there, look for position. And I applied at many institutions, you know, big financial institutions. And um, they were just, you were just getting the we regret <laughs> letters. And um, a few months later, I am invited to some, uh, what was it? It was a meeting of Cape Town business people and there was some foreign delegation here. And um, I connected with somebody in that delegation and they said, listen, we're meeting Cape Town business people this evening. Why don't you come and join us? I said, no, man, you guys go and meet and I'll meet you afterwards. I said, no, just come. In any case, I ended up, and it was at, in Gatesville, actually. I got there that evening and let's see who are these Cape Town business people and Mustang by Fred Robertson, same people. Again. Okay. And then... They asked me, like, so what are you doing? I said, no, I graduated and all of this, but I actually don't have a job at the moment. And then Bustak said, well, come and talk to us. We're looking at putting together this investment company. And um, I'll never forget the question that Fred actually asked me on that night. And Fred's our chairman. 
Is it just you did business science? I think this is it. Does that have anything to do with shares? <laughs> and then we, you know, we, I went to go and chat with Mustak. And, and then that year, in August that year, I really saw the start of Brimstone Investment Corporation. And I had this arduous task they had to make the first deal happen. And the requirement was that they needed to raise three million rand within six weeks to secure this whole deal around the Oceana Group, which was the first transaction of... There was no Brimstone, in fact, the name came much later. And uh, there I was, and, you know, I was the first employee, I was the secretary that answered the phone, I was the accountant, I was, like, just everything, which was great, because the learnings from there, again, was just phenomenal. You know, uh, you would do just everything. In fact, when the auditors walked in for the first audit the next year, there was I writing up the books... Um, participated in, you know, all the meetings, getting to meet people. And and this was all new. So we all actually, there was nothing that could tell us what black economic empowerment was going to be or what it was. And we were all really learning at the same time and learning together. And that was the start of Bermstone. And within that six weeks, we managed by going door to door, um, asking people to, you know, show their good faith and, support us and invest in the Spermstone, which we told the story about what, what we see it would be. And, and what Bermstone's really ended up being now is beyond what we could ever have imagined. Um, a, you know, a fairly substantial player in the black economic empowerment space, the significant asset base, uh, many shareholders out there, both locally, nationally and internationally. Shareholders that I think we've really delivered for over time. I think we're one of the few B companies that for the last 16 years consecutively have paid dividends to our shareholders and people have seen significant appreciation in their value. I think many could kick themselves that they didn't invest more in the company. <laughs> um, and again, the, the Bermstone story, I know Mustak's been on your show. He's spoken extensively about that. So. Um, yeah. So, so you've had the same job, well, at different yeah, uh, yes, levels. Yeah, exactly. So, oh, you work for one, one, one company. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not 1995. Sure, that's true. And I've been with the group with various positions and have yeah. roles and responsibilities across the group. So, uh, you know, one of the things we like to solicit from our guests is mm-hmm. uh, the issue of mentorship and how that plays a role. Mm-hmm. You obviously came on at the time where the journey was just starting. Um, how do you, how were you mentored and, and how do you like to mentor? If I can put it that way. Do you like to mentor? Men- <laughs> mentorship, I think it's a very personal approach and it's what you want to get out of it mm. as a mentee. Um, and people have, I, I think, internally people, the, the mentorship now, I think it's become a big buzzword as well because 15 years back it was fairly foreign. Um, like Instagram and everything <laughs> <laughs> else. So it's really what you personally want to want to get, you know, out of it. And and the key to it is really that relationship between the mentor and the mentee. I think that's key. You could have it either works or it doesn't. I don't think there's a middle road with that. Mm-hmm. And a key part, you know, and a key uh, characteristic of of that relationship really is communication. You need to be on the same wavelength. And, and be clear, I think both sides must be clear what they expect from each other and what they'd want out of it, yeah. When you think about today's youth, what, what excites you? 
Well, I see fascinating things happening um, across, well, all age groups, right? I see things like accidental Muslims. And I'm, I think I can call you guys youth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're under 14 hours. Yeah, exactly. It depends which definition of it, you know, that we use. But um, I see an, an awareness with, and a consciousness with, if, if I look at just religion and faith as, as and forget even 20 years, but if one looks at the last five years and the, the growth and awareness and willingness for people to debate constructively um, around matters, faith-related matters and that, um, I think there's a maturity that's come through in the youth very, very different to, to what it was before. And I think there's, there's a tolerance too. You know, we must stop assuming that everybody wants to fight with us, actually. You know, recently there were um, these massive floods in Kerala. Uh, you'd have seen that. And Kerala is a huge Muslim population. And this all happened through uh, just before Eid. And I think we should stop thinking that the world's against us and everything. For Eid, mosques and that were flooded. And people opened up temples for people to have Eid Salah and churches, actually. Um, and there are so many examples of of that. So coming back to, to to youth, I think there's a progressiveness about it. But it must be underlined by respect as well for each other and others' opinions. Um, my opinion is never... And it can't always be the right or the only opinion, you know. So there must be respect um, on both sides. But there are interesting things happening in the line of business. If I see some startups, amazing things in the technology space. Look at Google and the average age of employees at Google. It's, it's significantly young, actually. And these are... And I often ask myself, I, I have two sons. They are, what, 16 and 13. And, and I would sit and think, is a BSc or a business science or a law degree... How relevant is that for them, for the future workplace? Is it actually really relevant that they have to do math, science, this, that, and the other? In a structured BSc, when Google's hiring 16-year-old kids to come and work there and do completely out-of-the-box stuff. So how relevant is that? And it's being driven by this, well, technology, I think, is, is, is ruling our lives. And sometimes we become... Victims of technology. Yeah, I think there's a significant role youth has to play. And we're going to see that rolling out more and more as li- and life. It's not life that's changing for us. I think it's the world that's changing for us. Yeah. But your other interests in terms and your other uh, associations, particularly the University of Salambosh, mm-hmm. maybe let's touch on that sort of, um, uh, that story or that aspect of your, okay. of your portfolio. So, I... A few years back, I decided... I always wanted to do a... There was a particular area of research I wanted mm-hmm. to do. And I thought I would do it through a Master's in Business Science, perhaps. And every year I decide I'm going to register this year. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll go up here and I get the forms. And I just don't send the forms back. <laughs> so, I then realized, I thought, let, let me go and do a course that actually has some coursework because it will force me into a classroom environment again and you have specific deadlines and all of it. And I looked around and scanned and I thought, well, maybe it should be a, a MBA, mm. which is really what a business science is. 
it's uh, it's modeled on an MBA, or the MBA is modeled on that either way. And that's what I decided to go and do. At the, and I chose Stellenbosch University. I think I made the right choice. It worked for me. I did the modular course. And um, I must tell you, I enjoyed it. I really thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, the amount of learning that happens off each other in the class, I think that's that's probably the greatest experience in the class. Look, MBAs, people will tell you it's it's a divorce course, it's the lo- workload, and, you know, the, there are so many negative things actually to say about it. Um, I must tell you, yes, the volume is, you know, it's, it's a lot of work. But you have to prepare, and this is about you preparing for the course. By the time you get to that lecture, you must have read, you know, what you are meant to, because that guy's not going to teach the course to you. They're going to go through important issues, and that's it. The rest is left up to you. So I enjoyed it. I had a lovely little group as well that, um, you know, they had broken the class up into compulsory groups, and we were five or six in a small group. And we had so much fun doing this course, really. And um, But post that, I've also tried to just maintain and keep my contacts with the university. Stellenbosch, I think it's a, it's a lovely business school. Um, and look, there are three business schools in South Africa. They are rated basically the same. The accreditation is the same. Um, and you could, yeah, it's a university. You can go anywhere with that um, so I've maintained my links with with the university and I still serve on these the, the MBA the University of Stellenbosch they have some really good bursaries which they award to MBA students and others and I serve on the bursary committee there and um, for a time I was also interviewing incoming students and that into the faculty so I think the message I want to get across is if people wanting to apply for the course. Now, there are avenues. We don't, just don't always think of finance as a barrier. Just go and search. There's actually a lot of information available. Um, and you'd enjoy it. I think you, both of you <laughs> should go and do it as well. Um, but it's exciting. You learn so many things. You know, I've seen in my class, there were pharmacists, engineers, lots of engineers, um, medical doctors, to, there was one gentleman in the class and he was a fitter and turner. He worked on one of the mines hmm. and he came in and did the course. And it's, it's not difficult, you know. Um, the one thing I always tell people when they're thinking of doing an MBA is don't do it too soon after your first degree. You must really have worked for a few years. Otherwise, you will actually have very little value to add to the class okay. because there's so much learning of each other. Um, and that's what's important. So, but do consider that I'm, and, and it's so exciting now because in the MBA, both at UCT and Stellenbosch, there's a compulsory international elective, which is mm-hmm. cost is factored into your course already. So you can go and do what, 10 days in China or Canada or Germany, various places you can choose where you want to go and it's all, you've already paid for it. Um, it's just part of bringing this in line also with international trends. I see a lot of incoming MBA students from Columbia University, etc., coming into Cape Town, and they would do an elective in South Africa. And the South Africa elective is by far probably the most popular for those students wanting to, you know, who have options to go overseas. So, yeah. So, what are your hobbies? Why? I am Look, I, uh, I, I, I. I'm a creative person. 
I try and engage myself creatively and uh, I I love music. Lots of other things I do. I like photography. Yeah, plenty of other things. <laughs> so tell us about the I know Miles Zane's coming down next month. How's it linked to, to you? To yeah, so Miles Zane is coming and performing in South Africa. I about fifteen years ago I and for a long time I believed I wanted to create a platform for alternative music. And music that speaks to the soul and resonates with one's soul. And about 15 years ago, I formed an entity called Inner Circle Entertainment. And um, well, for the last 15 years, I've brought in many international artists, over 91 artists already, to South Africa on tours. And uh, we've had some interesting artists. Some, I can mention the names of something. Zaki Hussain, um, who's the world's most popular tabla player and he's won two Grammy Awards already um, I brought him to South Africa um, Shujat Khan is one of the finest guitar players in the world today um, and many many others and um, I just always felt that I wanted to create this alternative platform and not commercial mainstream music um, I must tell you I think there are many forms of music that shouldn't even be called music <laughs> um, because it's destructive it will destroy your soul actually and that's um, Alhamdulillah you know for the past 15 years I think the audience has grown the appreciation has grown and the best part about it is it's a completely multicultural audience though many of my artists have been from India some from parts of Europe and America um, but I'm seeing so many people sitting there in be it the Artscape Opera House or Baxter Concert or whatever, and you see this multitude of people, um, which they really define South African society, sitting and listening and watching pure Indian classical music um, and enjoying it. And this is not fusion I'm talking about, this is pure classical stuff. So it's off that base that many ideas were born. And I love collaborations, I must tell you. And South Africa itself has such a wealth of talent uh, that is so exportable um, in the line of music and even art generally. And two years ago, I put together a production called Symphony of Puzzle, where I had the Cape Town Philharmonic Orchestra play with an Indian violinist, and we scored some very traditional puzzles. And puzzles is love, it speaks about love basically and you can contextualize that in many different ways you know love for the creator um, and we had taken this traditional ghazals basically and some folk music of India which had never ever been played by an orchestra and we scored this music I wrote in a violinist from India and some other musicians with him and uh, it was the world debut of that that actual concept in 2016 and it so happened that during that time Mahir Zain was actually in South Africa um, he was busy filming two music videos and some friends of mine in fact the guys from the fort I don't know if you've spoken to them but you should chat to them sometime um, a really good filmmakers also Cape Town boys who had moved up to Johannesburg they were doing the production um, of Mahir Zain and I said to them since he is here, I've got this concert happening on Saturday night. 
Why didn't you just bring Mahir to come and watch this? And um, they said, yeah, we'll bring him, but we're not sure that he's going to stay and watch the whole thing. I said, it's fine, you can leave that interval. And he came. And at interval, I said, okay, you going now? He says, no, 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 I'm sitting, I want to watch the second half of this concert. And he really enjoyed it. And this was, you know, foreign music, or music foreign to him. And it was also music foreign to the greater part of the audience, in fact. Even, you know, we, there was just this immediate connect between him and myself. And we both agreed that we should do something. I think what or how or when, that was all still to come. And two and a half years later, we've got him coming back to Cape Town to do almost exactly this it's collaboration between him, his international band, who come from Amsterdam, Egypt, Lebanon, Belgium, Sweden, whatever. Um, so they'll be coming alongside him and playing with the Cape Town Philharmonic Orchestra. It's a 46-piece orchestra and all his music's being scored for them to perform. You know, he'll be playing with them. Historic evening awaits. Yes, it is. I think people are going to be part of history yeah. in the making. And uh, let's see where this goes afterwards as well. Yeah. Is that, do you have any regrets in life? No, none. If I were, I would live this life the same way, with the same people around me. I think um, what anybody aspires to do more, um, when you've lost people in your life, my parents and that I would have probably wanted to spend a lot more time with him. Um, and, you know, I think you must spend enough time with the people closest to you. I think sometimes we we sit and spend time on, on mundane and unimportant things, actually. When I was doing my MBA in, in my final year, uh, it's a year that my wife got ill. She had a form of cancer. My mom got extremely ill and she passed away in the year. I was busy doing my thesis in MBA. I had uh, very turmoil in one of our businesses that I was trying to resolve. And if anybody had asked me a few months before, these are going to be your challenges for 2008, how are you going to handle this? I would have said, impossible. You know, um, I can't do this. But... You know, you, you find strength in, I think, the strangers of places. And, and these things make you stronger. And um, you just learn to swim, you know. So I really, I don't have any regrets. And people have failures. I think everybody fails. You have to fail before you succeed. But you, it's just a matter of getting up and moving on and being strong and taking that along with you, you know. And... I think in, for me, 2008 was particularly, uh, you know, there was a lot of turbulence. But you have to stand and just, you know, balance everything, keep everybody at bay. I had, my kids were pretty small at the time when my wife was diagnosed. And um, you just see everybody, you know, coming together. But then you also realize the value of family in the greater sense and really close friends and people... And, and, and you sit and okay, now, is this important? Is this not important? Shoop, erase, you know. Um, and that's the attitude that I have, basically. Yeah. So this question we normally ask second when we start our podcast, but oh. I, I'm, I'm actually glad we 
kept it towards the end. Uh, we normally ask our guests, uh, how, how do you describe yourself in three words? But before you answer, I'm going to take a, 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 a snap at this. Having listened to your story so far, the three things that stand out is your tenacity, your determination, your resilience. Would you add any other characteristics to that? Creativity. Creativity and out of the box. And I am... <laughs> I... And, and you'd see it, I think, in, in, in Inner Circles Productions in that I, I try and maintain a standard, you know, and whether you're paying 10 Rand to come and see an artist divine perform or you're paying 10,000 Rand, every person in there is important and everybody needs to get the best value on that night, you know. Mm. Um, and it's maintaining a standard and you're only as good as your last production, really, you know. And being consistent and providing quality. And I'm a bit of, I think, a perfectionist and devil's in the detail. Um, and, yeah, fortunately, over the years, I've built a, a really appreciative audience for in the music space. And I can see how much, you know, the impact it has on people when they tell you after concert listening to an artist and these are often people that you know don't speak the same languages don't look the same as us whatever and they will tell me that they've been transported to some other world this evening they feel good and I often feel if I could could have made and given that that one person that great experience that nothing you know accomplished and achieved something you know there was there was a great Poet and Urdu poet, he came around about after the time of Mirza Ghalib because he was a, um, a great admirer of Ghalib. And this guy wrote, and I will just translate it to you. He said, You must treat this world as it's transient and, and, and sensitive, right? And the voyage of this voyage of life, it's a dream and a tale. But whenever a noble work you start, trust that that breath will never fail. You know, so I see people in NGOs in the Brimstone context. We have 31 NGOs that are beneficiaries and shareholders of Brimstone. And I see the work that people are doing. People okay. like, they're just across the board from Gift of the Givers to Lofob to the Nelson Mandela Foundation to Lily Boom Home to Muslim Hands and, you know, across the board. You see... The determination with which people are working are the social entrepreneurs um, in a space which is difficult. And that's noble work that people are doing out there. And, and they go at it despite vast currents coming against them. Um, and, I, you know, that's... But then there's also a piece of poetry that I read and from the same poet. He says, you know, those who for years have worn a crown of gold do not even have a canopy arching over their graves. You know, and we must always be conscious of the fact that one day you're going to leave this world and what you leave behind and what you take with you. So, yeah. Let's put it to you. What are you grateful for today? Except being on this podcast, of course. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm grateful that I was born to the parents that... I was born to. Uh, both of them have passed on and made the Almighty grant them their highest place in Jannah to all the other deceased. And that I have around me, I, 
we say this that you know I've been lucky to have been in the right place at the right time every time. <laughs> <laughs> but I've had personally great mentors also, you know, not necessarily official in a mentor mentee relationship with the contract and all of that. But people like Mustak Bray, like Fred Robertson, like many other people around me that I bounce off ideas. What if you I'm grateful to have had a really good circle of people. I have inner circle and a great team of guys that work alongside me uh, in the end, pulling off all of this. You know, I'm just a dreamer. I try and think up these creative ideas and that, but you need people to make this all happen. And um, and I'm grateful for having been born in South Africa and in Cape Town of all places, we, um, which I think it's a liberal, fairly liberal society. And... Such a fantastic melting pot uh, of ideas of it's just there is so much that we that we actually have on offer here and and one only realizes this when you travel outside the country and you see what other places don't have and the sense of community in Cape Town is just phenomenal it's unbelievable and you don't see that everywhere else, especially. Um, the nature of Muslim communities in other parts of the world I think are a lot more complex than ours um, and there are far more barriers and schools of thought and, and those are the things that people clash about and I would often say rightly or wrongly but you know what we talk about the onslaught on Islam and all of that but I think the greatest onslaught on Islam is actually coming from inside um, where it's imploding because of hard-headed people and hot-headed people um, and that's what we need to caution about. Yeah. When we hosted Sheikh Yasser Qadi, mm-hmm. uh, it's interesting to hear his perspective on South African Muslims, especially mm-hmm. in Cape Town. And he actually says that we should be a beacon of hope. Our community should actually take what we've learned and and how we've embedded exactly. ourselves into society and be an example for exactly. the Western side. And we are minority. And we are minority. We are minority. And that was fascinating coming from, let's say, a Western scholar, so to speak. Um, because usually we put the Western scholars or the Americans, the UK individuals uh, uh, on that pedestal. He was putting our whole society on a pedestal. No, 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 definitely. We are so lucky. Look at the amount of we, of masjids we have here. The quality of education, Islamic education. Here's a fantastic institution, institution where we're sitting and right next door. And the availability, again, of information and that it's we're not short of anything halal food i know we were talking earlier about the, the halal movement in south africa and cape town lots of initiatives happening there but we're not uh, short of any of that it's, it's just so available yeah you said today's the last day you're gonna die right but you only have enough energy to say a few words besides the kalima what would you tell your loved ones and friends I'm telling to watch this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good answer. <laughs> I know. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank I'm you. Really really and yeah, on that bombshell to steal that bomb, <laughs> Jeremy Plus. <laughs> what a lovely evening. What a lovely uh, insights, perspectives, uh, 
Lisa, shukran for being here again. And Allah bless and protect you and your family. Amen. Safely home and keep us in your du'as. Inshallah. Amen. I ask you to do the same. <laughs> <laughs> Salams, guys. My name is Mohammed Zaud and I'm the co-founder of Toledo Society, which is a podcast network dedicated to English-speaking Muslims across the globe. We've launched a couple of shows and we have several in the pipeline. Our first show, which is called The Transit Lounge, which I host, is currently live and you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. On The Transit Lounge, we interview people who have had a considerable impact on the Muslim world. People who've had positions at the White House, members of parliament, business people, and community people. We also have another show that's currently live called Seven Stories, seven minute stories as you drop off your kids to school. We'd love your feedback. And if you'd like to find out more, visit toledosociety.com. That's T-O-L-E-D-O society.com. So that's it for today's show. We hope we added value. We hope you enjoyed it. But most of all, we hope our guests inspired you to live with purpose. Don't forget to send us your suggestions via info at accidentalmuslims.com If you know anybody out there that is inspiring, that's leading, that's living with purpose, please uh, do contact us. And remember, feedback is our oxygen. So follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. I hope you enjoyed. God bless. Assalamu alaikum.